Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. You may be seated. Glad you made it this morning with the hour time difference. It's nice having cell phones these days. It takes care of that. Mostly, I don't know if you ever have a plan for Sundays. Probably not. Probably not like I usually am thinking through a plan if things go wrong. What if I can't make it or whatnot? Usually my plan is, is just, Catherine, get up. Maybe you could just read this. And, and maybe you, you know it as best as anybody else right now because you've gone through it with me enough. Today I had a better plan, like Ted said. I got my brother here. Probably wouldn't even know the difference if he stood up here and talked. I don't often know the difference on the phone. You know that echo that sort of happens with cell phones sometimes. Sometimes think that's happening on the phone. It's good, though. We've been having a good time. It's good to have him. Andrew um, is his name. Uh, Ten years younger. Um, It's been good to catch up because I was out of the house when Andrew was 11. And... uh, and, and so we didn't grow up together, so it's been good to catch up. One thing I've fallen short with, maybe you can help me out if you want, uh, the one thing Andrew said before he came is, is, is the one thing he wanted to do is, could you maybe find someone I could go on a date with? <laughs> so, fell short in that. If you got an idea, sort of like Craigslist, no soliciting, no nothing like that, but only real, real um, opportunities, be interested. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, if you're new, welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. My name's Jesse, I'm the pastor here. We're glad to be with you um, this morning. If, if you're just joining us, we've been looking recently at the Gospel of John in a series we've entitled Jesus changes everything. We've made it all the way through now to John chapter 7 in this gospel that's all about God's son giving God's enemies the right to become God's children if they believe in Jesus as God's savior, savior that God provides. But this thing called belief has turned out in this gospel to be a bit more slippery than it first appeared, not because it's all that difficult of a concept to latch onto, trusting in someone else to do what you can't, but because many of those in this gospel who've turned to believe in Jesus have ended up doing so for all the wrong reasons. Those who end up believing in Jesus in our story today in John chapter 7 and 8 are really not all that different. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there to John chapter 7, where we'll begin. Again, we're doing chapter 7 and 8. We're picking up. We did this last week, but we're just filling it out a bit this week because this is a big chunk. Similar to last week, we can't cover everything. So if you have a Bible open, it'll help as I jump through this pretty much in order, but I'm not going to just read through it directly. So You can open up your Bible, turn there if you have one. We'll pick up there in a minute, but before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, John says that the aim of this gospel is that we might have life. And that such life comes through faith in Jesus, believing in Jesus, that he is your son, that he carried out your work 
on our behalf. But recognizing who Jesus is, I've been so impressed this week, Lord, that we have to recognize also who we are. And that's not comfortable. And if I'm honest, Lord, that's not comfortable for me any more than it is for anyone else. Which is, I'm sure, why I need him as much as anybody else also. We all need him. And also why we need your help if we're going to hear what this gospel has to say. So I pray, Lord, even for my own heart, that, that I would know him today and see him today and trust him today as with all of us. To my own shame as much as for my own salvation. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Well, what does it matter where you come from? In our day and age, in our country, in our American culture, that was pretty much founded on the idea that with a little blood, sweat, and tears, you can do anything you want. What does it matter where you come from? I was reading this week in an article on the 25 greatest self-made men where Ben Franklin tops the list as the 15th of 17 children born not to a butcher or to a baker, but to a candlestick maker. (laughs) But supplementing his only two years of formal education, Ben Franklin, with a life of reading, was eventually able to become a Renaissance man, an inventor, a scientist, a, a philosopher, and one of our country's most beloved founding fathers. So what does it matter where you come from? Other men to make that article's list include John D. Rockefeller, Frederick Douglass, Thomas Edison, and Ray Kroc, the the high school dropout whose golden arches now form the foundation of the global fast food industry. Ray Kroc would say, luck is a dividend of sweat. The more you sweat, the luckier you get. So let me ask you again, what does it matter where you come from? To one degree, it doesn't. But there are other ways in which where you come from matters a great deal. That where you come from is intimately tied to where you're going. Another to make that article's list was the governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger. From being the youngest ever to claim the Mr. Universe title, to his appearances on the silver screen, to his entrance onto the stage of politics. Some would say Schwarzenegger has done it all. But one of the things he wanted most was the one thing he couldn't do precisely because of where he came from. You might not know this, but in 2016, Schwarzenegger attempted to throw his name in the ring as the Republican candidate for the presidency, alongside the other 50 who were in the ring, and was actually looking at that time for a vote to amend the constitutional requirement for natural-born citizenship 
Because as it stands, he couldn't do the one thing he most wanted to do because of where he came from. So though to a certain degree, it matters very little where you come from, there are other ways in which where you come from matters a great deal. Ways in which where you come from is intimately tied to where you're going, which is very much what we find in John 7 and 8. First, with Jesus, and then with the rest of us. First, with Jesus, that where he comes from is intimately tied to where he was going. Now, we can't take time to dissect everything in this passage, these two chapters. But I want to show you what knits it all together. What I called last week the confusion around these two great statements related to the feast that this passage is all about. What knits it all together, what you might not see reading this on your own. And to begin with, it's all about where Jesus comes from. Chapter 7, verse 1, we're told that after this, after Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 and his walking on water and his declaration that he was, in fact, the bread that comes from heaven. Remember that statement? We're told that after this, Jesus went about in Galilee and not Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him and that the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, which is important because Jesus has been showing up at these feasts since chapter 5, not simply to participate as a spectator, but to make a statement about himself. The celebration of this harvest feast frames these two chapters, remembering a time this people had lived in booths before, lived in makeshift dwellings in the wilderness, where there was no harvest, and celebrating their entrance into a land where there was. This feast frames these two chapters, but the, the focus here isn't yet on Jesus even showing up at that feast, but on his avoiding it. So much so that his brothers, if you read through this, actually start taunting him, telling him he should go up to the feast, where they're trying to kill him, right? go up to the feast in order to be seen, not just by his disciples, but to show himself to the world. And John adds this devastating comment, verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Why? Because I'm guessing they thought they knew where he came from. And even though they had probably heard the stories of Bethlehem, as far as they were concerned, they had grown up with Jesus in that podunk town with the proverb that nothing good can come from Nazareth. And for them, he would always just be their older, somewhat odd brother who wasn't content to be from one twig past the sticks and wouldn't amount to anything more than a tinker like their father. Because they knew, or at least they thought they knew, where he came from. Which is just like family, isn't it? Just like family, right? This is it. I remember when um, 
I had just decided to, to propose to Catherine, just decided to propose that, that this was the girl that I was going to marry, and I went to my mother to tell her the news, which was at the time, it was quite surprising, I, I, I was quite young at the time, but I was determined went to my mother, and in a strange mixture of happiness and confusion, her immediate response was, wow, shouldn't she be marrying like a doctor or something? <laughs> it's family. It's family, for good or for ill, that, that harps on the idea of where you come from more than anyone else, Right? You can't change. This is why back earlier in this gospel, it says that when Jesus was going up to Galilee, he was expecting to be rejected because a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. And the core of that was probably his brothers. Because this is what family harps on. Now, if you ever think that your family was the first to put the fun back in dysfunctional, you can know you have good company. Not just with me, but with Jesus. But Jesus' brothers aren't the only ones concerned with where he comes from. Where Jesus eventually goes up to the feast, when he eventually gets there, not in public, but in private, we see eventually that this is true also of the broader population as well. So look at verse 14. It says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Because we too know where he came from, and it wasn't from at the feet of one of our rabbis. He never went to school. He's been scratching out a living like everyone else in Nazareth. There wasn't much else that you did in Nazareth. Yet Jesus teaches like one who knows what he's talking about. And after his own explanation, beginning in verse 16, that his teaching is not his own, but belongs to the one who sent him, that it is from God, some actually begin to wonder if Jesus wasn't in fact from God as well. If he wasn't the Christ, the one sent from God to right all wrongs. Their only hang-up, that according to verse 27, we know where he comes from. Because this is one of those situations in which where you come from matters a great deal. You can't right all wrongs if you're part of what's wrong to begin with. You, you can't fix what's broken in this world if you're broken yourself. Best we can do is a, a patchwork job like those mutant toys from Toy Story. Remember them in, in Sid's room? A doll's head, an erector set for a body, and a jack-in-the-box arm. Putting ourselves together, just trying to survive. That's the best we can do in this world as part of the brokenness. And so for Jesus to suggest that he was the one who was coming to fix it all, he couldn't be part of this. But he claims to be so. And yet everyone says, we know where you come from. We know where you come from. This is one of those situations where it matters a great deal. 
Now, what I think is so significant about this passage is that, that Jesus actually agrees. He doesn't question their premise that where he comes from is intimately tied to where he was going. He just questions the assumption that he comes from Nazareth and the conclusion that therefore he's not going where he says he is. He says, rather, watch where I'm going and you'll understand where I come from. Which is what lies behind statements like he makes in verse 33. I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to him who sent me back to the Father. It's what's behind this, these two great allusions to the images of this feast of booths, water and light, that he is the one from whom the river of God's spirit flows because he is the one in whom the spirit rests and that he is the light of the world as much now as he was when he created the world in the first place because where he's going will unlock the power of where he came from. He doesn't disagree. Which is why he says, if you turn to chapter eight, verse 14, for I know where I come from and where I am going, but you do not know either. Every detail of these two chapters is driving at this, that, that though everyone assumes Jesus came from Nazareth, and when in fact he came from Bethlehem, the irony is greater still in that from the very opening of this book, we've known that he came from God, and that he was with God. And that he was God and was going back to the Father to do what God alone can do on our behalf. It matters where Jesus came from because it's intimately tied to where he was going. Yet there's a turn in the story. That is, much as the focus to begin with is on where Jesus came from and where Jesus was going, and that's what everybody wants to debate about. From the Father back again, it's what Jesus says. As these chapters unfold and, and, and this feast of booths reaches its height, Jesus turns the spotlight and shines it from himself first to second shine on the rest of us and where we're going, which is also intimately tied to where we came from. The shift starts as early as chapter eight, verse 21. You could sort of see it. He's still, he's still answering the question of where he comes from, but it's starting to shift. So he says, I am going away, and you, the Jews, he says, will seek me, and you will die in your sin. That's where you're going, why? Because where I am going, you cannot come. Then in verse 23, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. But let's pick up in verse 31. This is the, the shift has taken place completely at this point. It says just before this that many had begun to believe in Jesus, 
And these are the ones Jesus addresses. Saying, if you abide in my word, what I just told you about where I come from, where I'm going, and where you're going without me, if you rest in that and your need for what I came to do, he says, you are truly my disciples. In verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That is, it'll change where you're going and you won't have to die in your sins anymore. But these Jews aren't really concerned with where they're going because they're in denial with regard to where they came from. Look at their response in verse 33. They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? We've never been enslaved to anyone. But don't miss the irony in this statement during that feast of booths. I mean, for Pete's sake, they're celebrating their journey through the wilderness from slavery to salvation, where they didn't have to live in booths anymore. From slavery to salvation. It's like a member of PETA walking around with leather shoes. Or, or McDonald's, who used to have on their employee health page that, that, that once warned its, its employees, its workers, against eating McDonald's burgers and french fries. The irony of it. We've never been slaves to anyone. Except, of course, that one time we were slaves for 400 years. But that doesn't really count. Even though it marks every other holiday of our year, where we remember what God did in the past, we long for Tim to do it again. Because really, all of a sudden now, we're back in this situation where the Romans now rule the world and we're functionally slaves again. We've never been enslaved. We're children of Abraham, they say. To which Jesus says, not a chance. Not a chance. You're seeking to kill me. And that's not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. They say we have one father, even God. To which Jesus says it can't be. Because God is the one who sent me. Then verse 44, look at it. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God, whoever is from God, hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them, you do not accept them, you do not let them sit and live in them, is that you are not of God. Jesus says, where I came from is intimately tied to where I'm going. And no less, where you're going is intimately tied to where you came from. It's like one poet once said, the deceit of sin 
is strong indeed and clapped around my heart. It binds me, blinds me, and bids me die to tear my life apart. A cruel monarch and potentate, my sire the devil be, that born to die as one of his, my life's the death of me. And that's no less true of us today left to ourselves than for those Jews nearly 2,000 years ago. And yet there's more. Because throughout this whole passage, Jesus doesn't just lay out these two parallel stories of where he came from, where he's going, of where we're going because of where we came from, that never the two shall meet. But that his story actually has the power to change ours. Because he was going back to the Father and going via the cross. This is the great arc in the Gospel of John. That he came down to return back, but he would only do so through the cross. And it's the only reason he came down to go through the cross. Always the cross, only the cross, to die that death on our account that we might live on account of him. So Jesus says in verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now these Jews don't believe it. They say even Father Abraham died. To which Jesus says this remarkable statement, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. That might not sound like much today, but many have recognized how profound that statement really is. It's a little grammatically awkward. Because in this, Jesus is taking on himself in a, a stronger sense than ever before in this gospel, the name of God, who called himself the great I am. Many have recognized the profundity of this statement. But few have recognized how much more profound this statement is in the context of the Feast of Booths. Because though we often think this title, I am, that, 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 that God took upon himself, though we often think that this title, I am, speaks to the constancy of God's character, that he is who he is and, and will never change. That's what we often think. Back when God takes this name on himself, his explanation of it is actually much more in terms of the persistence of his presence. Yes, he is who he is, and he does not change. That is true. But when he takes this name on himself that he says no one has known before, even though people are calling him the great I am, long before he he. he tells this to Moses, that this is the name by which I will be known. 
He says in that moment, he explains it in that moment, that it is because this this new thing that, that no one's known before, it is because he will now be present with his people like never before. In that burning bush, he tells Moses, go get my people. Go bring them out of slavery. Slavery, right? Go get them out of slavery. Bring them back to this mountain where this bush is to pick up my presence so that I go with them in all other journeys forward. So that half the book of Exodus is what? Really technical stuff about building this tent. Half the book. You get the name in the front end because they pick up the presence on the back end. And so when Jesus takes on this name himself, he's alluding back that this is much more about the persistence of God's presence. A presence that his people picked up on that same mountain where that bush burned and that dwelt in a booth of his own. A a booth of his own, a tent of his own, a tabernacle of his own. It's all the same word. Right in the midst of all the other booths. A tabernacle that was later replaced with a temple in which this story of Jesus many years later actually takes place. Even if the great I am hadn't dwelt in that temple in a very long time. That is until Jesus shows up. And the point is this. This whole feast of booths and where Jesus came from, and where he was going, of where we come from, and where we're going without him, and where we might go rather because of him, is not just celebrating when God brought his people into a land, when they didn't have to live in booths anymore. But this was a looking forward to, a longing for the day when God would show up, and set up his booth once again. When this great I am would become flesh and dwell among us, tabernacle among us, pitch his tent once more. But now not do it in there, apart where we can never get to, but do it in a man who would go to a cross so that we could have access to the presence of God like we never had before. This is all about when the Son of God would give to the enemies of God the right once more and and for the first time the presence of God by becoming the children of God if they believe in him as the Savior of God. Before we sing, let me just encourage you in two ways. First, let me encourage you to remember where you came from. At the end of this account, those who initially believed in Jesus are the ones actually picking up the stones to kill him. 
And it's not just because Jesus claims to be the Son of God, the great I Am, but because he's told them that as the great I Am, they're the sons of the devil who walked away from him. Yet that's where we begin. That's where all of us begin. And that is what we must accept if we're now to be the children of God instead. And if we are, we ought to walk in a heap of humility. A heap of humility as we walk before God. Ever dependent, ever looking to and resting in and returning to Jesus. Clinging to Jesus. We ought to live that out in a heap of grace towards everybody else because that's where they begin too and that's what they struggle with. That's what we struggle with, with the, for the rest of our lives with this former identity that if we've now trusted in Jesus still wants to cling to us. Its grip is tight. It may be taken out of us but we're not taken out of it completely or vice versa, however you want to envision it. So with a heap of humility before God, we ought to live with a heap of grace towards everyone else. Because this is where we begin. Even today, over lunch, with your spouses or your siblings or your children or whatever it is, whoever you're around, remind each other of what Jesus has done and remember it yourselves as you, you work out that humility before God and the grace you show to one another. And then plead with him for those who are not yet the children of God. Because he is the only one who can change it. Remember where you came from. And second, let me encourage you to remember where Jesus came from. That he had from the beginning dwelt at the Father's side. And was God's instrument of creation and wasn't part of this world's brokenness. Which means he was able to step into the brokenness to fix it like no one else could. And he's still able to do that. He does that in the biggest sense. But he can do that with your own life. And that's the only hope is that he would. We recently watched the latest installment of the Planet of the Apes trilogy, the newer version that's sort of the backstory to the 60s, 70s version. I watched those too when I was a kid. Recently watched the third one though, which tells the story of the virus that infects the human race and begins to devolve them. In the words of one of the characters, to strip the, the human race of all that makes it human. They lose their speech. They lose their cognitive abilities. So, so this character who describes the virus in this way takes it upon himself to be humanity's savior. Even at one point, sacrificing his one and only son who's actually infected with this virus in order that he might save the rest of humanity, to quarantine the rest of humanity. And he describes it in those terms. terms. His holy war for the sake of humanity. And yet in the end, both the son who is slain 
and the father who killed him are both dead because of that virus. What a different story from the one we have here. When father and son cooperate in in perfect unity, where the son takes on himself the weight of what's wrong with the world without ever becoming part of the problem. So remember where Jesus comes from because that's what allows him and no one else to go where he goes and to pave our pathway in that same direction. Back to God, the one we were made for from the very beginning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we often forget ourselves as much as the Jews seem to forget themselves. That we're children of Abraham. We've never been enslaved. Even if we're celebrating when we had once been enslaved before. Even coming to church, which is supposed to be a a weekly reminder, part of the rhythm of life to, to remind us that we need grace and that grace is only found in Jesus and yet we forget. And yet today, I pray in your grace, you would, you would work in our hearts that, that it would be a little harder for us to forget because Jesus is shining all the brighter. I pray we would look to him, continue to look to him, that he would be our savior and we would, because of that, have the opportunity to be your children. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.